If you are there at Psalm 34, you see the superscription, which is contained within the Hebrew text of Scripture and translated here in English. And this superscription mentions a specific event in David's life, King David. And let's turn then to this episode in 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. The superscription says that this is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And if you're at Psalm 34 and you see this superscription, it's good for us to turn in our Bibles then to 1 Samuel chapter 21 and we'll read from verses 10 to 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? This is a very interesting story in David's life, isn't it? It's very strange. David was fleeing for his life. And it's very, very interesting and somewhat confusing because... There are difficulties in trying to reconcile this superscription in Psalm 34 with 1 Samuel 21. Because if you realize, it says in Psalm 34 that it's Abimelech. And here in 1 Samuel 21, it says the king is Achish. We're not quite sure how to reconcile the names of the two kings. It's possible that one was an actual name and The other was a kind of title. It's very possible. And whatever the situation is, and however David chose to act in the way that he did, this particular psalm has some very, very interesting facets to it, related, of course, to one's enemies. And David had them. If you look at chapter 22, just just after I finished reading the end of 1 Samuel 21, You'll find that chapter 22, verse 1 says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. 
And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. And of course, verse 6 and following go on to talk about Saul killing the priests at Nob, and then David continuing to hide and flee, and then even, of course, chapter 23, beginning in verse 15, it talks about Saul pursuing David as he did so often, and even in chapter 24 with David sparing Saul's life, and then chapter 25, the death of Samuel, the prophet. There's much that's going on in the historical record of David's life, but one thing that seems to be a constant, he always had his enemies, and they were always looking for his ouster. They were always looking for his capture, And most certainly Saul was looking for David's life. He wanted to put an end to it. And out of the maelstrom of all of this difficulty, you find that David sits down somewhere, maybe in a cave, and he writes Psalm 34. And this is what he says. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that they may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What a marvelous psalm. And it seems to me as I read through it that three particular verses, a command and 
Some exhortations leapt off the page at me, and I suppose it's because they started with that exclamation, Oh! Did you see them? Verse 3, Oh! Magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. Verse 8, Oh! Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. When I was thinking about each of those very, very clear ideas of what we're supposed to do in this life, it seemed to me that all three of them, as I said, uh, an imperative, the first, and then two exhortations, they really are all about, I think, interpreting Psalm 34 for us. Because you have, first of all, magnify the Lord. Secondly, taste and see that the Lord is good. And thirdly, oh, fear the Lord And it seems to me that everything else that David is talking about in Psalm 34 is explicated, explained, exposited, taught, interpreted for us by those three things. So let's outline Psalm 34 like this. Let's look at the first one in verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I think we could actually use this imperative, this strong exhortation to encompass the whole of verses 1 to 6. Why should we magnify the Lord? Why should we exalt His name together as a congregation, as a people of the Lord? Why? Here's the answer. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. This is David's experience. I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him, that means those who gaze at Him, gazing at the Lord, staring at the Lord, looking to the Lord. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, David himself. Remember 1 Samuel 22, he, he had all of these, um, these followers, these 400, and it said, and all of those who were in debt. This poor man, David includes himself here, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. You read through the chronicle of David's life. Uh, you, you read these reports in these Old Testament historical books, and you see time and time and time again David saying something like this, Lord, save me. Lord, deliver me. Lord, I need your help. Lord, we need food. We need resources. We need more men. We need more power. And the Lord never failed to give it in His will and purpose. 
And what David is saying is, I I prayed to Yahweh because I was fearful, I was in trouble, and He answered me, and He delivered me. I gazed intently into His face, and the answer that came back was that in my heart cry, as I gazed upon the Lord, I became radiant. My, My face, my countenance was lifted up. Why? Because... If you reach out to the Lord like that, and you want His will, and you want His will to be your will, then you can never, the Bible says, be disappointed. You'll never be disappointed. Now, is that not enough of a reason to magnify the Lord together? To exalt Him? I mean, we should, David says, therefore magnify and exalt Yahweh because of answered prayer. I mean, that's what we're doing on Sunday evenings. We're gathering together. We're asking the Lord for things. And when He answers those prayers, we magnify Him together. We exalt Him. We must cry out to Him to save us out of all of our trouble. And the Bible says that the Lord hears our cries. I suspect that it is no wonder he says what he does in verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Is that your heart response? Is that what you say to the Lord? Look, I have some huge mammoth prayer requests that I'm beseeching the Lord for in these days, right? And so do you. They may not be health-related like mine. They, they may not be uh, financially like someone else. Uh, they may not be uh, uh, mental or material or physical, but whatever your requests are, you cry out to the Lord. He answers you. He delivers you from your fears. You gaze upon Him so that your face is radiant. You remember when Moses gazed on the Lord and he came off the mountain and his face was white. His hair was white seeing the Lord, at least to a degree. And this is what David is saying. And this is what we ought to ask ourselves. Do we magnify and exalt and bless the Lord's name together with God's people? I suppose that's why you're here. That's why I'm here. I need this service of worship. I need this for my spiritual life. I don't do well when I'm alone. I need God's people. I need their prayers. I need their fellowship, I need their encouragement, and you need mine. And this is what David is saying in Psalm 34. No wonder he says, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I didn't know, 31 plus years ago, when I was dating my sweetheart before we got married, that I would be standing here expositing the text of Psalm 34, knowing that she has a very serious cancer diagnosis, 
And yet, in the Lord's good providence, the very verse that she and I, at our time of coming together and being married, we committed one verse from the Scripture that would characterize our married life, and it is Psalm 34.3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. That was crocheted and framed and prominently placed in our home and has been there ever since. She and I committed ourselves, what come what may, that we would magnify the Lord together and that we would exalt His name. And in the providence of God, that's what we're still doing. And if it is His purpose, and if it is His will, we'll continue to do that. Look at the, the second exhortation. The second exhortation. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. If the first exhortation was actually an imperative, a command, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together, this exhortation is like it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're like me, one of the things that jumps out at me from this particular verse, Psalm 34, 8, this wonderful exhortation, it's the word taste. And you and I, I don't think, can help but thinking of something that completely satiates our taste buds like a good meal. Think of the meal that's your favorite. Think of how much you enjoy it as you taste it. That's actually the sense of what David is saying here. He's using the idea of the metaphor of something that tastes so wonderful that is a tremendous encouragement to your taste buds. And he says, and when you taste whatever that is, simply transcend that which is physical and do this by way of exhortation. Taste the Lord. Taste the Lord. Take a Take a good mouthful of the Lord's goodness. That's what he's saying. Taste the Lord and see that Yahweh is good. And then he says, and see that the Lord is good. So both taste, use your sense of taste, and use your sense of sight, and you're going to find that Yahweh is good. And you're also going to find that you are a blessed man, you're a blessed woman who takes refuge in Him. Refuge. Shelter. Protection. A shield. Would that not have been so very important to David in battle? A shield? Um, an armament? A protection? And then he just uses that as another metaphor to say that if you and I as weak and frail and sometimes fearful 
as we all are, you need to run to Him. Run to Him for refuge. Run to Him for shelter. And you won't find a person for whom you are running directly who says, not now, I'm busy. Not today, come again. But wait a minute, they're on my tail. They're coming. Please, let me in. Give me refuge. Give me shelter. Give me protection. And if you come to the Lord, and if you taste His goodness, and if you see His goodness with all that He's blessed you with, you shall be blessed because you will be a man or woman who takes refuge in Him. And you know what the explication, the examination, the interpretation of that very exhortation, taste and see that the Lord is good? I think it's all of verses 15 to 22. I think it's all of those. Look at verse 15. The eye of the Lord, the eyes, excuse me, of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The Lord, of course, doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have ears. That's what we called an anthropomorphism. It's the language of the psalmist, the language of David. He's um, accommodating himself to what we understand. And we understand what eyes are. We understand what ears are. And even even though the Lord doesn't have physical eyes and physical ears, the Lord is omniscient. And the Lord hears and He sees all that we're doing. He knows it all. And if we are a company of those righteous persons and He hears their cry. Do you see that listed in the latter part of verse 15? Their cry. That's a, that's a cry of request, isn't it? And look at verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? This is what Scripture says. This is what God's Word has to say to us. Go to the Lord. And we could say it maybe in the negative vein. Those who refuse to taste and see that Yahweh is good will not see His good pleasure if you, if you go to the Lord and you do not see His goodness, you do not taste and see that He is good, then you will come to Him at some point with your requests and find no answer. That's exactly what verse 16 says. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. I mean, that couldn't be any clearer by way of contrast. Verse 15, He hears the righteous and their cries. Verse 17, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. He delivers them out of all of their troubles. But not so, verse 16, of those who do evil, the face of the Lord, it's against them. It's not even that He turns away. It's actually that His face, 
And remember, that's another anthropomorphism. He doesn't have a face, but that means his regard, his help, his protection, God being a refuge. He turns a blind eye, we might say. He turns his face away. And in this case, he's actually against those who do evil. He turns to them with his face, or he turns away from them with his face, and he does so with the face of judgment. Because they refuse to taste and see that the Lord is good. Look at verse 18. You can taste and see that Yahweh, the Lord, is good because He's near to those whose hearts are broken and delivers those who are crushed in spirit. That sounds a lot to me like 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. That's what fellow believers are to do with those who are faint-hearted. And you remember when we were going through the one another's of the New Testament, many of them, and when I was teaching on 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and I said that that word faint-hearted means small-souled. Small-souled. And you know that's the very phrase here in Psalm 34, verse 18. The crushed in spirit. It's as though someone's soul begins to shrink. They're faint-hearted. Their, their spirit is crushed. They're broken-hearted. And what does the Bible say? If you taste and see that the Lord is good, then you will find out that when that broken-hearted life of yours when that crushed spirit of yours seems to be at its lowest ebb, you seem to be at your worst place, the Bible says this, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Do you remember in that historical narrative when Sarai was doing some very wicked things to Hagar, her servant? And do you remember... When Hagar was sent away, even Abram didn't stand up to Sarai. And when she was sent away, the Bible says in the book of Genesis that she pushed her son Ishmael to a desolate place so that she could not see him die of malnourishment. She didn't even want to see it. And she, of course, herself was totally malnourished as well. And then she just cried to the Lord. And the Lord visited her. And the Lord gave them both nourishment. That's the brokenhearted. That's the crushed in spirit. And what does the Bible say? If you taste and see that the Lord is good, then when it comes time, and it will for every one of us to be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, the Bible says you taste and see that the Lord is good, and He's going to come near you. He's going to visit you in your broken-hearted condition. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. 
Now, I wish, and I'll admit it right here, I wish verse 19 didn't say, many are the afflictions of the righteous. I would sure like it to say, occasionally, the righteous are afflicted. But it does say many. You live long enough in Christ, you're going to have many afflictions that will come your way. And it could come in all forms. It could come in all shapes and all sizes and all situations and all scenarios. And the Bible says, many are those afflictions, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And you know the example, the ultimate example of Psalm 3420, he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Does that remind you of anything? How about John 19? The Son of God Himself dying on the cross and the Scripture that the Apostle John records in John 19 verses 33 to 36. And he says, in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled, this quote from this psalm. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. You could say it this way. The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, the sinless Son of God, He was broken hearted over the sin of His people and the Lord was near to Him. And the Lord protected Him so that none of His bones would be broken in fulfillment of Holy Scripture. God has marvelously every single detail of your life and my life and even the life of the very Son of God. He would not have bones broken because the Lord had prophesied and John had seen the very fulfillment of that prophecy that it wouldn't happen because the Lord is in control of all lives, including the life of Jesus Christ. This is, this is marvelous. Look at verse 21. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. It's true. And these opposites are there for a reason. Many afflictions are the lot of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And afflictions will actually slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous, they'll be condemned. The Lord will deal with them. Why? Because they refuse to taste and see that the Lord is good. They kick against the Lord. They kick against His plan. They hate Him. They revile Him. And I cannot help but seeing that verse in John 19 about none of Jesus' bones will be broken. And in that very scene of Calvary, there are those wicked men who continue to hurl their taunts against the Son of God. Where's your God now? He's not going to do anything. If you're truly the Son of God, come down from that cross. Deliver yourself. And of course, Jesus kept entrusting Himself to God who judges righteously. 
And all of those who hurled their taunts at Jesus were the very ones who hated righteousness and loved darkness and wickedness, and they were condemned. Why? Because they didn't follow the exhortation in Psalm 34 to taste and see that the Lord is good. Third and finally, O fear the Lord, you His saints, verse 9, for those who fear Him have no lack. They have no lack. And that particular exhortation is explicated for us. For instance, look at verse 7. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who do what? Who fear Him and delivers them. This is, this is an absolutely astounding statement. Who is it that encamps around those who fear Him? The angel of the Lord. Now, I don't know exactly who the angel of the Lord is, but it might be either the first or second persons of the Godhead. Because in several instances in our Old Testament, there are these phrases like the angel of the Lord. And it seems as though that's such a supernatural power that might even transcend and certainly does the human and maybe even the angelic. Or maybe this is an angel of the Lord in the sense of the highest of the archangels. And what do they do for believers who fear the Lord? Here's the answer. If you fear the Lord... If that's your life, dear saint, dear holy one, if you fear the Lord, you will have no lack because the very angel of the Lord, verse 7, encamps around you and delivers you. You remember in the book of Hebrews where it says, be careful who you entertain because you might be actually entertaining angels unaware. God's angels are all around us, protecting us, encamped around those who fear Him. We don't pray to angels. We don't pray through angels. We pray to God, but we certainly say to God, would you allow your angels to encamp around me? I'm in deep trouble. I fear you. I love you, I revere you, and I'm asking you to deliver me. That's what verse 7 says. Look at verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger. That's the animal kingdom. But those, those human beings, those who fear the Lord, those who seek the Lord, lack no good thing. It's astounding. We may not think about it. We may not assume it to be true. But David said at another point in one of the other Psalms, I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. God will take care of his own. Isn't that what Matthew 6 tells us? Don't worry about your life, what you shall eat or how you shall be clothed. Doesn't God know how to take care of the whole animal kingdom? If he does that, Won't He take care of you? If you ask Him for bread, will He give you a stone? 
If you ask him for some level of sustenance, will he give you a snake? This is, this is stuff you can bank on, my friends. You ought, to, you ought to magnify the Lord as a congregation, exalting His name together. You ought to see how the Lord tastes, and you'll see that He's good, and you ought to be able to fear Him, you saint, you holy one, in such a way that you will have no lack. Look at verse 11. Come, O children, David says, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, to revere Him, to honor Him. And then he asks this question, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Have you heard those verses before? They're somewhere in our Bibles. Uh, Look over at Proverbs, Proverbs 13. You might jot down, if you have a pen, some of these cross-references because this is a great truth in the Word of God. Proverbs 13.3 Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And that's why, that's a good cross-reference to Psalm 34. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. Proverbs 21, 3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. You know, he, he, he looks in our hearts and He knows whether deceit is there. And He knows that if we're actually speaking deceit, we've got problems in our hearts. Then He says in verse 14, does David in Psalm 34, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. James 1. James 4. First Peter, Romans 12. These are, these are all New Testament passages that, is, that, in a sense, take their cues from Psalm 34. All of these passages, for instance, Romans chapter 12 certainly does. This, this, this is sounding like Psalm 34. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And verse 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Doesn't that sound so close to Psalm 34? No wonder these... Bible writers saw in both Old and New Testament all of these wonderful parallels, all of these great principles of truth. And it's including the principles about what we say and who we are in our hearts 
What does our heart say? What kind of language do we use? Do we keep our tongue from evil, our lips from speaking deceit? Do we turn away from evil and do good? Do we seek peace and pursue it? This is, this is one of those psalms that I think bears a kind of memorization that will help us all. And maybe those three exhortations, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. These are... These are the kinds of exhortations. These are the kinds of commands that ought to live in and through our very actions as Christians. And when they do, we can pray them right back to the Lord with confidence. If I magnify the Lord, if I call His name blessed, it's because He heard my humble cry If I taste and see that the Lord is good, it's because I've taken refuge in Him. If I fear the Lord, He's going to provide no lack in my life. You say, are all of these things true all the time in every way so that you and I, by simply believing these things, live on easy street? No, of course not. Because... David is talking here about afflictions. He's talking about trouble. He's talking about sleepless nights. He's talking about needing answers from God. He's crying out to the Lord as a poor man. He's asking the Lord to encamp around him so as to deliver him. We read in 1 Samuel that David is running for his life. We see that he is one who can't even take over the throne of of the kingdom of God until all his foes are defeated and it takes him years and years and years even to get to Jerusalem and yet he's a prayer warrior and he says I'm going to magnify the Lord I'm going to bless his name his praise shall continually be in my mouth that should be our heart tonight as we pray let's do that now Heavenly Father, these are wonderful exhortations. They're the kinds of commands and exhortations that we need desperately to ponder. Does my heart want to magnify the Lord to exalt His name with the congregation of the righteous? Do I really want to bless the Lord at all times? Do I have the kind of life where in my heart and upon my lips His praise shall continually be in my mouth? Do I taste and see that the Lord is good? I want to be that blessed man who takes refuge in Him. I want to fear the Lord. It's one of God's holy ones. And I know if I do, I'll have no lack. Oh, I know that many afflictions are going to come my way as a righteous person, but the Lord will deliver me out of them all. I know that your eyes, Yahweh, and your ears, 
and your face is inclined toward me. You hear my righteous cry for help, and you'll deliver me out of all my troubles. And when I'm just utterly brokenhearted, when I'm crushed in spirit, you promise to be near me. I want to climb into your arms and ask you to lift me up. Father, thank you for inspiring through your Holy Spirit the pen of David wherever he was. Maybe he was in the cave of Adullam. And maybe he was fleeing for his life. And he actually took time to sit down and to write this psalm and then sing it. And then it became one of the songs of the Hebrew Psalter. And we want to pray it back to you tonight. May we do so with thankful, praiseworthy hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.